I walk under the crows in my neighborhood now and I'm like, you're not so scary anymore. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Welcome to CBC Canada Reads Competition 2020. What year is it? 2024. Thanks, AD. Oh, I kind of took the wind out of my sails vis-a-vis this introduction. But anyways, welcome everyone to a very special edition of Keep It Fictional, your podcast for book book lovers. Book lovers by book lovers from the Port Moody Public Library. Today, we are doing a very special edition of this podcast in that we have collectively, between the four of us, all read the books competing in this year, Canada Reads Festival. It's not a festival. It's a competition. So this annual Battle of the Books pits five Canadian books on a theme to be debated by Canadian celebrities over an intense four-day debate. So five books are brought to the table, but only one book can leave a winner. This will be debated by various champions from the fields. This year we have a mayor, an actor, an Instagrammer, an author, and they will vote on which book will reign supreme as the winner. Last year's winner was Kate Beaton's Ducks, the very first graphic novel to win. Previous winners of the competition have included Five Little Indians by Michelle Good, Johnny Appleseed by Joshua Whitehead, We Have Always Been Here by Samra Habib. Each year of the debates has a theme, and the theme of this year is one book to carry us forward. So in a difficult world beset by many tough things. This book is supposed to help us find resilience and the hope to move forward. So the debates will take place on CBC Live or on radio or wherever you get your fine Canadian content. From March 4th to 7th, it will be moderated and hosted by Ali Hassan, who has hosted since 2017. And There's a little something for everyone this year. So competing today for the challenge of who gives the best book talk and maybe convinces the other people to read their book, we have fashion influencer uh, Sadie. Uh, Sadie, what book will you be defending today? I will be defending Meet Me at the Lake by Carly Fortune, the very first romance novel to ever be included in Canada Reads. Very exciting. So yes, this year marks kind of like a little bit more genre fiction into CBC Canada Reads. So Sadie will be defending that. Uh, Virginia, what book will you be defending? Well, if the theme of this year is one book to carry us forward, you can't do better than a book that is titled The Future. I think just for that, gonna have to win. So a compelling and powerful argument. All right, Emma, even though you are not Canadian, what Canada Reads book will you be defending? This year for American Reads, just kidding, uh, I have Bad Cree, debut novel by Jessica Johns. And that's kind of like a supernaturally horror thing. Yeah, kind of horror. It's like a family story with some horror, some magical realism. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, not the first time that horror has been on CBC Canada Reads because maybe it was last year, Mexican Gothic was on the list, um, but unfortunately, did not win. 
I love that book. I do love that book. Do I think that it had a chance of winning? No, I do not. But winning Canada Reads is really important because it has a big impact on the authors and the sales of the books. So Ducks, which won last year, was the number one best-selling Canadian title of the year as determined by the book sales. And so this usually gives a big bump to the authors as well as to their publishers. So I'm excited to be representing two books, which is Denison Avenue by Christina Wong. And then the back of it, illustrations by Daniel Innes, which is published by ECW Press, which is quite small and Canadian. And so this actually had to go into another print run so that people could get their hands on it, which is very exciting. It's always wonderful to kind of see like small press Canadian things get kind of like the attention they deserved. And I will also be representing Shut Up, You're Pretty by T. Matonji which is a collection of short stories, which was put out by VS Books, a uh, part of Arsenal. So even though Fiona is not with us, in many ways they are still represented because this is an imprint of stories that are edited and chosen by Vivek Sharia, who is one of Fiona's favorite people. And this imprint is there to feature work by new and emerging writers who are Indigenous, Black, or a person of color. So again, really excited to see like the breadth of genres, different authors. We've got romance. We've got horror. We've got sadness. We've got something that's illustrated. We've got the future. And so I feel like it's only fair to start with the future because, you know, it's very on theme. So, Virginia, why is this one book to carry us forward? the title. Didn't we already talk about this? Anyway, well, I chose The Future by Catherine LaRue, translated from French into English by Susan Uriu. And the reason I chose this is because I actually already had this on hold when we ordered this book for the library. So I got it just before the book was announced as one of this year's contenders. So I thought it was good timing. I didn't even look at all the other options and just went with this one. And The Future of this book is championed by Heather O'Neill, author of Lullabies for Little Criminals, which won the Canada Reads in 2007. So I think she knows what she's talking about. And I think she knows what makes a champion because she is one. So this is a book that is a story set in Detroit or Fort Detroit in the book. And so it's a bit of an alternate history going on here because Fort Detroit has never been ceded to the Americans in this book. And so it remains one of the largest Francophone communities in North America. And the book is also a dystopian story. Now, we have done an episode on dystopian novels. And I remember Gabriel, who chose the topic, talk about why they like reading dystopian novels. And contrary to popular beliefs, this subgenre is not just all doom and gloom. They found comfort in reading these stories because they're often stories of resiliency. There are stories about what triumphs when civilization breaks down. They are about the indomitable human spirit, and that often gives hope. And so they really enjoy this particular genre because of that. And so if you are also more attracted to this type of dystopian novel, then I think the future may be for you. So in this book, the dystopia happens in one particular city, Fort Detroit. The rich has left, the industries have abandoned the city, and so leaving behind all the people who live in poverty, people who are working class, people who are of color, immigrants, people who don't have the means to get out of the city, or people who don't want to. No one comes to Detroit unless you're a tourist. There are these like urban decay tours that brings busloads of visitors to town so that they can snap pictures of the city in ruins. But Gloria has just arrived in Fort Detroit and she is here to stay. 
She's moved into her daughter's house, and so far she has mainly stayed downstairs because she's not quite ready to venture to the second floor just yet. She's not ready to see the rooms of her daughter Judith, or her granddaughters Cassandra and Matilda, and especially not ready to face the bathroom where Judith allegedly drowned in the bathtub, killed by someone. And her granddaughters have gone missing ever since then. The one hope that Gloria is hanging on to is that someone reported that they saw her two granddaughters leaving the house carrying backpacks at some point. And so she believes that they haven't been kidnapped, they haven't been killed by the same person, and they have to be alive still. Gloria has to believe that. But going to the police is no help. They don't have any leads and are also not really interested in solving the case either. That's what Gloria soon realized as she settled in Fort Detroit. When you need help, you look to your neighbors. It's a city now where the only people you can count on are the people that lived around you in your community. Neighbors like Eunice, who lives next door, whom she bonded with maybe because of the grief that they both have over the loss of a loved one. Like Solomon, who has taken it upon himself to create community gardens in backyards of abandoned houses all over the neighborhood to make sure that everyone has enough to eat. Like Thomas, who creates a makeshift doctor's office to take care of the sick. Fort Detroit is a community where when someone needs help, everyone shows up and everyone rallies around them. Gloria also learns things about her daughter Judith, things that shock her, things that she has no idea is happening. And because of all these new things that she learned about her daughter, she knows she needs to find her granddaughters. She needs to tell them that she's here for them. But it's been like seven, eight years since she's seen them. They were kids back then and they must be teenagers now. Can she even recognize how they look like anymore? And how? How is she going to find them and where to start? Well, rumor has it that there is a place called Park Rouge where the kids go. The kids who have been abandoned, the kids who have no one left, the kids who got lost in the system. This is a place where they have managed to keep secret from all the adults and supposedly no adults live there. And this is a place where the kids rule. This must be where Cassandra and Matilda have gone to and Gloria needs to find it. Now, the story of the future is roughly divided into three parts. First part, we meet Gloria and we learn about her life in Fort Detroit. Then the second part of the book, we're taken to Park Rouge to learn about how the kids live there. And the third part sort of brings the two together. And I'm assuming that the author chose this structure to show us possible ways forward when the world is burning down. How do we deal with it? We, on the one hand, we have the adults who have sort of one ideology that they're working with. How are they going to make life work? And then on the other hand, we have the kids who have something quite different in mind. So what is the right way? Is there a right way? How do we adapt to this changing world, to a world that is in ruins? How do we bring sort of the two together? So I get why the structure of the book is set up this way. I guess it's just my personal preference that I, I realize as I was reading this and also thinking about a couple other books that I have read before that is sort of structured in the same way that I, while I love books that sort of ought to have alternating chapters with multiple points of view that jump from timeline to timeline, like I love sort of unraveling the story when it is like a big mess. I, I love doing that. I find that I, I have trouble with books that 
take us, you know, like one section where you spend a whole chunk of time about one story and then suddenly just sort of stop and then it sort of like shift to this something else. I often have trouble staying engaged in a story like that. I find that the changes in tone or the changes in the story, it doesn't work for me. And so I had some trouble with staying engaged in this particular story. And I think it doesn't help that like the second part, which is switched to, is kind of like a Lord of the Flies-esque kind of story, which I don't care for. So it was difficult. It was difficult to sort of stay engaged, let's just say. And again, that's totally my personal preferences and it shouldn't stop you from reading this, of course. And so I'm really interested to know what Heather O'Neill thinks about the book and why she chose this book. I do think, though, it is appropriate Canada read choice, especially given the theme this year, because I think the world that is depicted, sadly, is not that far from reality these days. So I think it's really important to have a book that gives us sort of some different options on how to deal with it when the world is burning to the ground. So for anyone who liked a dystopian novel, who liked the hopeful kind of dystopian novel, I think this would be a book to check out. So this is The Future by Kevin LaRue, translated from French into English by Susan Uriu. Thank you, Virginia. Were you, I, I, I like that you said that, yeah, you can see why it's kind of like a Canada Reads book. I will admit I was a little surprised when I saw what the theme was because I just saw the books and I didn't think there was kind of like a unifying theme to all of them. So what do you think are the chances of the future winning? It was hard for me to judge given my experience with it. <laughs> and I would love to hear what the other books are. But I think, I do think it's got really great writing. Like, you know, that does carry through. So it was good read. And I think because I think 2024 or like all of the things that's happening right now in the world, I feel like this is appropriate. It's really an appropriate choice. So I can see why they they picked this book. But you're right, though. Like, I mean, thinking about the other books, I'm not sure how they fit the theme. So if they are really looking at like, this is the theme and we're picking a book that represents the theme, then I think it has a good, good chance. Yeah, I think that you're saying it's good writing that probably appealed to Heather O'Neill, who is championing it. But I'm curious if you think the fact that it's set in Detroit is going to hurt its chances of being a CBC Canada Reads book. Well, Detroit is super close to like Windsor and all those other places, right? And I think there is, according to the author, they talk about how there is like a, a good Francophone community there. And I think this is like, but it's alternate history, right? So it's like, it is for Detroit, but not really Detroit. So maybe... We'll see. Heather O'Neill seemed extremely confident and very well prepared for the debate. So I think it's going to be a, a very, very fun one to watch because I think she's, as a writer, she's quite cutting and I think she's quite incisive. So I think she'll be, she might be able to argue that point. So I'm going to choose one of my books to talk about. And this one is is a book set in Canada, set in a very specific neighborhood in Canada at a very specific time about a very specific people. So this is Shut Up, You're Pretty by Tia Matanji. And again, just look at all those beautiful stickers on the front. Um, so this was the winner of the Trillium Award, the Edmund White Award for Debut Fiction. It was a Writer's Trust of Canada finalist. It won the Publishing Triangle Award winner. And reading it, you can definitely see why. I would say this book has content warnings for um, sexual assault, suicide, drug addiction, 
death by assault. It deals with a lot of extremely heavy topics. Um, so if you're not in the right mind space for that, I would I would probably approach it with caution. This is a debut collection of interconnected short stories about a young Congolese woman's journey from girlhood to womanhood. It follows her life in Scarborough from about six until 26. And although it's kind of described as a coming-of-age story, I would argue that our main character, Lolly, doesn't really have a childhood. She doesn't really have a girlhood in the traditional sense that we would that we would think it of. Our first story starts as she moves into this housing complex in Scarborough, and she meets Joliette, who she nicknames Jolie because she's pretty and beautiful and one of the only white girls in this complex. They become fast friends when Jolie kind of gently in the way that kids do kidnaps her and uh, takes her down the street to flash their boobs to strangers for money for cigarettes. (laughs) And it goes from there. So this follows Lolly as she goes through her girlhood, her schoolhood, running into kind of various characters in the neighborhood and her life. We meet Teresa, her enigmatic cousin who just shows up in her bed one morning and says we're going on an adventure. We meet her as an adult as she comes into contact with Jonas Atie, who her roommate Patty warns about how he slowly destroyed the life of his previous girlfriend, becoming a story that's whispered amongst the halls of the university and then slowly slowly, slowly becomes that story. We meet Junior, her brother, her distant mother, and her father, who only sometimes pretends to be a father. It's the story about Loli as a nomad. She is full of grief for something she doesn't understand. She is searching for herself in various places and various people as she falls into drug use, as she falls into sex work, as she slowly shifts her dreams for what is possible as she's buffeted by various forces in life. It's a collection of sharp, incisive short stories. The author has kind of described it as writing one particular story about one experience of Black girlhood. When she started the collection, which I thought was really interesting, it had shifting points of view from different girls from this neighborhood. But I'll quote from her, when she was writing these stories independently, she realized that slowly she was writing the same character and that it was one journey. And she chose that specifically because she says, I didn't want to write a collection of short stories about a young Black woman living her life and have it be suggested that it was the experience of all Black women. I did understand, however, that it would be probably regarded as such because we don't have enough young women of color writing. And I think that she is so right. This is a really difficult book to read. Lolly's experience is really difficult to read. It's a really, really, really hard read to get through. I, I I really had to read a story and then go take a walk outside and then come back to it. And so I think that this book's power is really in the way that Mutanji writes. She has such a deft way of crafting this story and this experience and these these characters that come in and out of Lolly's life, in and out of Scarborough in this in very particular place. 
in the way that it will haunt you for the rest of your life. I can absolutely say that. I always find it really hard to talk about short story collections um, on this podcast and in life because they're all like really distinct little stories. So how do you how do you choose? How do you choose one to talk about? How do you choose one through line to kind of explain? And I think that that is kind of the, the challenge for a collection like this. But I would say that at the end of it, you really do have... You, you will be satisfied because you really do get that through story because she chose to to tell it through one main character. I think that maybe the challenge that her champion... So uh, this book is going to be championed by Kudakwashi Rutendo, who is an uh, actress and a bookstagrammer. And I think that her challenge is going to be, while this is a wonderful collection of short stories, it is not very hopeful. And I, I think Rutendo kind of spoke to that in that she said that this book is about the promise of hope and future, not in spite of a heavy past, but because of it. And so trying to reconcile, she says, kind of like what you've been carrying. So all of this history, all of this trauma, all of this, the difficulty of being an immigrant, of coming from one place to a new place and feeling so, so other is something that the main character doesn't directly struggle with, but indirectly struggles with. And I think, again, that is why this collection is so powerful and that Mutanji isn't going to spell it out for you. You have to feel it and experience it with Lolly. And by the end of it, you you really have empathy. Rutendo said that she chose this particular story because it really resonated with her, but also because she wanted a book that would make her feel something. And you will feel everything. You will feel every emotion possible. What I really love about this book is that the setting is is so is so distinct. And and another quote from the author is she said that Loli and Scarborough have a lot in common. They both have that same conflict where people say one thing about it when it's something completely else. And so in the way that we think of an immigrant experience in one way and that there's one story to tell and that there's one experience of kind of Black womanhood, Mutanji shows us that it's so multifaceted and to really dig a lot deeper. Again, as I said, I think the real challenge is going to be is if they're hewing to the theme, the book is not very hopeful. It is resilient in the way that Lolly keeps changing and the way she keeps resilient and the way she keeps going, again, despite of that heavy past. But I don't think that it is a very hopeful book. At the end, you just want to lie on the ground and cry for days and days and days and days. And maybe I did. And maybe that's why I can't remember what year it is. I'm too sad from this book. Um, but yeah, if you are looking for kind of like a, a beautiful collection of short stories from a kind of wonderful voice, I'm definitely going to be following the author's career with a lot of interest. Um, she is a poet. This is her debut collection of short stories, and I can see her only getting better. Um, I would definitely recommend picking up Shut Up, You're Pretty if you're, if you're wanting to feel a lot of sadness for a long time, for a very long time. It is a way to move forward, though. Lie on the ground. It sounds good to me. Sometimes it's all you've got. Sometimes it's all you've got. And I, I think it is kind of inherently a little bit more hopeful. Her mother's just like, stand up. We gotta go. <laughs> 
And sometimes that's what life is. You can't lie on the floor forever. Sometimes you just have to stand up and go. So yeah, we're going to swing over to Sadie again, repping the first romance book. Yes. So as I mentioned, I will be talking about Meet Me at the Lake by uh, Ontario author Carly Fortune. I realize there's a lot of Ontario representation. I think that we we might be having some some West Coast coming up, but this is definitely uh, very set in Ontario. Um, this is Fortune's second novel. Every Summer After was her first and also takes place in Ontario, uh, close to where uh, she spent her formative years and still lives. This book is being championed by fashion influencer and model Miriam Najot. And yeah, as I mentioned, it is the first romance in Canada Reads. So this book tells the story of Fern Brookbanks. Now, Fern never dreamed she'd be back living in Muskoka. At age 32, she's made a life for herself in Toronto. Well, it's not exactly what she envisioned. Her love life leaves much to be desired. She is working towards her goals and, slowly, her dreams. None of which include running her family's lakeside resort, which her mother Maggie owned and managed for Fern's entire life. But now her mother has died, very suddenly, in a car accident. And Fern has no choice but to return and step into the humongous shoes that Maggie has left. It doesn't help for a situation that 10 years earlier, she made the very difficult and very deliberate choice not to follow her mother's path, to instead stay in Toronto after completing her business degree, telling her mother that she did not and would never want to run the business with her, would never want to work side by side doing the one thing that Maggie loved as much as Fern. And Fern believed sometimes she loved it even more. It broke Maggie's heart when Fern made this choice. And it took both of them many, many years to rebuild their relationship. But now, Fern is back, doing the thing that she vowed she would never do, working alongside her ex-boyfriend, Jamie, who is now manager of the resort, and seeing guests who have known her since she was a child and have seen all of her ups and downs of adolescence and know all the horrible things that she put her mother through when she was a teenager. Fern isn't even sure that she wants to keep the resort. She knows that if she sold it, she could use the money to finally build her own dreams. She could finally open up her own coffee shop in Toronto, which she has wanted to do for as long as she can remember. But until she makes her choice, she is here, in Muskoka, trying to hold it all together. Now, one night, Fern is trying to avoid having to schmooze with the guests in the dining room, and she hops onto the check-in desk to help out a new guest. The man is tall, extremely well-dressed. His suit is clearly custom-made. He is obviously a Torontonian who looks very, very out of place in Muskoka, and when Fern looks up to get the guest's name, she is met with eyes that she knows. Eyes that look almost black, but she knows are actually a rich espresso brown. Eyes that she has spent the last nine years trying to forget. The eyes of Will Baxter. Will and Fern met 10 years earlier in Toronto, right before she made the historic choice to never go back 
to Muskoka to work at the, the resort. Will was in Toronto um, visiting family. He was an art student at Emily Carr, and he had come back to visit family, and he had been commissioned to paint a mural in the coffee shop that Fern was working at. It was Fern's job to supervise him while the shop was closed and he finished his painting. After he was done, the two of them spent 24 hours together. Will, who was a Toronto native, took Fern to all of his favorite spots in the city before they spent the entire night talking and planning for their, at that point, separate futures. It was even Will who helped Fern realize that she didn't want to go back to Muskoka. At the time, Fern was dating Jamie and Will had a girlfriend of his own, so neither of them let anything go further than was proper. However, at the end of the night, Will proposed that the two of them meet one year later on the dock by the lake in Muskoka at Fern's family resort. Fern wasn't able to stop thinking about Will the entire year. Her and Jamie eventually broke up, going their separate ways, but amicably enough that when her mother asked her years later if she should hire Jamie as manager, Fern was happy to say yes. And now, one year later, Fern arrives at the meeting, at the dock, excited and nervous to see Will again. Except Will doesn't come. Fern waits for hours on the dock. Long after the sun goes down and the heat fades from the day, but Will never shows up. So Fern is shocked now, nine years later, and furious to see Will. And her first instinct is to tell him, well, he's kind of nine years too late. But instead, Fern does the most mature thing that she can think of. She flees the lobby and races outside into the dark, only to trip, bashing her leg open on the ground and immediately halting her hasty exit and increasing her embarrassment. Now, following close behind, Will tries to explain why he's there. He's very different from what Fern remembers. He is serious and solemn and honestly seems like the complete opposite of the creative, passionate art student that Fern first met. Now, it seems that Will and Fern's mother had made a business deal. Will came to the resort a year before for a wedding, and he offered his expertise as a business consultant in exchange for a free week stay at the resort. Will honestly had no idea that Maggie had died and was simply showing up to fulfill his end of their deal. He didn't even know Fern would be there. Well, the question of why would Maggie ever agree to meet with Will and to make a deal is the forefront of her mind. What also stands out is the realization that the resort needed help, that her mother needed help. And this idea is so unbelievable. Her mother was a force who never once suggested that the resort might be in trouble. Now, since she's been back, Fern has purposefully not been looking into the state of the resort's finances, even though the accountant has been calling relentlessly. But now she starts to realize that she can't ignore the future of the resort. And she can't ignore Will Baxter any longer. Now she knows the smartest thing to do is to accept Will's help, but she's not sure that she can actually work with him without first addressing the heartbreak of him not showing up to meet her. He gives her vague excuses, saying that she wouldn't have liked the person he had become. But somehow, he still convinces her that when it comes to business, he actually knows what he's doing, and he will be able to help her figure out how to either restore the resort to its former glory or get the best price for it in a sale. And so the two start to work together. 
Surprisingly, as the two work more and more together, the feelings that first developed 10 years earlier start to resurface, and Fern finds herself struggling to remain indifferent and angry with Will. He even starts opening up to her more, eventually telling her that he gave up his dream of being an artist when he had to take on more responsibility after his younger sister got pregnant. While this helps Fern understand Will a little bit more, it's clear that he's still hiding something from her. And after their history, she's not sure if she will ever be able to trust Will again. The book is told in alternating chapters. It kind of shifts between present day and 10 years earlier, documenting the 24 hours that Fern and Will first spent together. And it eventually includes diary entries uh, from Fern's mother, which she wrote the summer that she found out that she was pregnant with Fern. Through these different time periods, we learn a bit more about Fern and Will, and tangentially we learn more about Maggie um, and the promises that they made to themselves and the promises they made to each other, many of which they were forced to break. This book is definitely romance. Um, it does touch a little bit onto the mother-daughter relationship and kind of the love between uh, parents and children, but the focus is definitely on Fern and Will and their relationship, including many extremely racy scenes. So if you are not a fan of explicit sex scenes, then I would suggest you steer clear of this book. Um, I honestly did enjoy this book, even though I wasn't a huge fan of Will as a character and couldn't really understand why Fern couldn't just get over him. Um, but... <laughs> That being said, I may still uh, pick up uh, Carly Fortune's first novel or even check out her new book, which is coming out later this year. But I do have to admit that when I first started reading this book, I was so confused as to why it was nominated for Canada Reads. Um, yes. No, I, like it definitely portrays life in Canada. So we do have that check mark. Um, but it's a very specific, very privileged part of Canada where everyone can kind of afford to go spend their summers at the lake. And I don't know if that's just more of an Ontario thing or if my family was just not lake people, so maybe I just don't get it. But anyways, I struggled to understand kind of why exactly. Uh, when I was trying to find context for the nomination, I read a little bit about why Miri Najot picked this book, and it mentioned that the book touches on mental health. And I would say that it is it is apparent when you're reading the book, but it is very, very subtle. And it wasn't until reading the afterword of the book that I started to understand a bit more about maybe why this book would fit into Canada Reads. And I was able to point to some very specific parts of the book that touched on two very specific and related mental health conditions. And I'm going to try and do this without crying, and I cannot promise it's going to happen. And so that is uh, postpartum anxiety and postpartum OCD. And if I'm being 100% honest, it was only while reading that that I was able to place myself within the story and relate to it a little bit more as a relatively new mother who still very much remembers the isolation and the fear that comes with all of a sudden having this new and very, very tiny and very fragile being who, who is relying entirely on you. It's... It's very easy to relate to some of the characters and see their struggles a little bit more. I'm very lucky that I did not experience postpartum OCD. And the anxieties that I did experience were more or less manageable on my own. But 
that didn't make early motherhood any easier at times. I think that one of the most common themes surrounding new parenthood, at least that I found, is that no one talks about it. Um, You don't talk about the bad things. You talk about the joy and the happiness, and that's there as well. But because of that, so many people are left to struggle in silence and to struggle without the proper resources to help them. And I think that because of that, I wholeheartedly think that this information needs to be included in stories. And I thank Carly Fortune and Miriam Najo for shining a light on that. That being said, it was done in such a subtle way that even as someone who has gone through an experience that is very similar, I I did not realize that was what the author was pointing to until I read the afterward. It wasn't until I read it and she very clearly said, this is what I included in the book and this is why I included in the book and these are the characters that were dealing with this. It wasn't until then that I actually realized that that's what the book was about. And so I think that the subtlety did not do this book any favors in that sense. I think that it it does kind of looking more at the theme. I think I can see it as a book that will carry us forward because it is it is hopeful. It does provide that second chance at happiness through heartbreak and through grief. And it allows for that that hope and that happiness to come through. So I think that I, I would probably overall recommend Meet Me at the Lake for someone who's looking for kind of a nostalgic, overall satisfying second chance romance. And maybe you'll be better at picking up on the subtleties than I did. <laughs> Not sure. But yeah, it, it was it was an interesting choice in my mind for for the selection. And I think like I've I've talked with I, I know I've talked with Kareen about this. I've talked with some other people about this, where it just if you're wanting to put a message in the book, it, it shouldn't be the afterword that that alerts you to to the fact that it's there. And so that was kind of my my biggest criticism of of the book. But yes, that was Meet Me at the Lake by Carly Fortune. Thank you, Sadie. Do you think because it was a romance book that she went subtle on the message? Do you think it was that she was trying to like uh, foreground the romance story? Or why do you think it was it was done with such a light touch? I think it could have been. I think that, I mean, the romance was definitely the point of the novel. And I think that that was sort of the romance between Will and Fern was what carried that the book through. But I, I do also think that like the character of Will and the blocks that he has and to what was stopping him from being able to be in this kind of romance were where I think less subtlety could have could have played in. Like I I do think that she could have put more into that and it wouldn't have necessarily taken away from from the characters and from the story and from the romance at all. I think that yeah, I I, I don't I honestly don't know why why it was done so subtly. It um yeah, I'm I'm not sure, but it it could have been more and the romance still would have would have stood out and would have carried forward. Like how long did she wait on that dock for him though? Like a whole day. A whole day and like into the night, I think. I trying to remember, yeah. Yeah. Eventually her mom comes and no man is worth waiting on a dock for a day. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not going to tell you the reveal, but it's it's worse than than that. Yeah. Was he in the lake the entire time in like scuba gear, just like staring at her? Just like poking out of the water. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Sadie. I'm going to 
really take my turn again with the winner of this year's Canada Reads. I'm calling it here. None of you other books have a chance. This book is going to destroy you. You're not going to notice that it's destroying you until it's destroyed you and then be like, oh no, I'm in pieces. I'm so sad. Why am I so sad? All of these books are sad. And I feel like Canada Reads books that are sad have like a distinct advantage over the ones that are like happy. Because again, sometimes they have to be really subtle about their messages and the sad ones aren't subtle. They're just like, this is sad. This is sad. So clink, 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 clink. This is the sound of cans being collected out of the recycling in the morning. Every night, the people in the Chinatown, Kensington area take their recycling out, put it behind their houses, leaving in it cans, plastic bottles, things that can be recycled for small change, but they really can't be bothered. And every morning, a little army of old ladies collect the cans from the recycling, collect the cans left overnight by the college students who have been having a good time the night before, collect them in their shopping carts held together by old election signs, take the cans, take them to the collection agency for small change. You might have one in your neighborhood. You might say hello to them. You might wave at them. You might judge them. But do we ever really ask who they are, what their story is, why they're doing this? The book Denison Avenue by Christina Wong and with illustrations by Daniel Innes is a novel about grief and loss and starting again when it feels like you are losing everything. To continue on our Ontario theme, this book is set again, in the Chinatown-Kensington area of Toronto, an area that is undergoing rapid gentrification. For Wang Cho Sum, she has lived in this neighborhood for many, many years. It wasn't the first place she has lived with her and her husband. The first place that they settled in was eventually taken over by the city. Despite their protests, they were evicted and shunted off to another area of the city. But for many, many years, this has been the home for her and her husband and their community. They have their little rituals, the library that they go to read the Chinese newspapers, the place that they go for their egg tarts, the place they go for dim sum, the place where they meet their friends and do exercise in the park and walk. They've got Lucky Ed's, the place where they can get the best deals, their own grocery stores. This is her home. Until her husband is one of the 49 pedestrians killed that year. Her husband is returning home from the grocery store when he is run over by a fancy expensive car that doesn't stop, that doesn't look back. And so her entire world changes in that moment. She and her husband have always done everything together. They have built a world here. And so she has to start navigating her life and her neighborhood, missing half of herself. They have been together ever since she received a picture of him and his letters when she was living in China. 
and came over to marry a kind stranger. She has to navigate a neighborhood that she's starting not to recognize. The buildings are changing. Businesses that have been there for years are disappearing, being replaced by expensive organic food places where one banana costs more than her entire haul selling fruit and vegetables from her garden on the corner. This is a meditation on loss. It is about her slowly dealing with the grief of losing her husband, her sense that she's losing her community, and her community is losing their way of life. In the book, she says, I just want to be somewhere where I can hear my language, eat my food, and be with my friends. This is a really personal story about the cost of gentrification and specifically the effect that it has on elders in the community who are not always able to advocate for themselves. It's a story that asks the question, whose history is worth preserving? Whose rights are more important in a city? Christina Wong, the author, grew up in this community, and she has watched it change, and she has watched its effect on the elders there. You definitely get the sense in this combination of prose and poetry and illustrations that there's a tremendous sense of loss. And I think that we living in the Lower Mainland need to acknowledge that this is happening here too. That all of these people who have lived here are getting pushed aside. That their history is being destroyed again. I think that this is a relevant, beautiful, personal story I think that most of this book is the the writing by Christina Wong, again, in poetry and prose. And then the other half of it is illustration by David Ennis, which are these beautiful pen and ink drawings of places that don't exist anymore. These restaurants, these associations, these houses, these grocery stores that sustained a community aren't there anymore. They have been pushed aside and they have been destroyed in the face of this gentrification. And so ultimately, this book is about Chosum's determination to move forward and to move on. It's about her holding on to the grief and holding on to the stories and holding on to the history and persevering. And I think ultimately, it is hope with realism. She knows that everything is changing, but she will endure. And the story is kind of bookended by a younger girl, Chloe, who, when Chosom is sad, she, she collects little oranges and just kind of hangs them on the doorknob for her as a little surprise. And Christina Wong has talked about when she was growing up, her parents going into this area and connecting with the elders and that kind of connection between her and the older people and learning their stories and talking to them and connecting with them. That was so important for her when she was growing up to have that sense, that sense of connection with her culture. And I think that that is what the book is ultimately hopeful about is that connection that if we 
can connect with the elders, if we can honor their stories, if we can honor their experience, is that there is that hope that it can continue. Maybe not the same as it was, but that there will be that continuation of the culture and of the people. Denison Avenue is going to be championed by Nahed Nenshi, which I'm wonderfully excited about. He's the former mayor of Calgary and one of the bright lights to come out of Alberta. So I'm very, very, (laughs) very, very excited for him to talk about this book. I really do think that if we think of Canada Reads as kind of like essential reading, required reading to kind of understand the experience and to build empathy and to build hope, I really think this book is is it. It's a it's a beautiful elegy. It's a wonderfully empathetic story and I think that it also kind of spurs you to look at things and look at people in a different way, which is really what fiction is is there for us to do. It's it's to change our perspective on things. And I think that if you read this story and if you understand Chosum, you'll really understand the importance of preserving this history and these stories and and maybe it will spur you to action within your own within your own space in your own community so yeah that is denison avenue again published by ecdw press which i think is just wonderful for canada reads to have chosen something that you know might not have reached the audience that it would have and through this kind of competition will so i'm very excited and uh, my money's on this one all right So (laughs) with that gauntlet thrown, Emma, we're going to swap it over to you, which is something a little, little different. Yeah. I mean, I really loved this book, but after hearing your take on Denison Avenue, I cannot guarantee that Bad Cree is going to win. I think the Bad Cree's chances of winning are entirely dependent on how well Dallas Sunias, who's championing it, can argue for it. He's an athlete. Don't know how great he is with his words. So we will see. I have faith. I have faith. I really, really genuinely enjoyed this book. I thought it was a really incredible debut from the author Jessica Johns. But like I said, we will see. So this book is Bad Cree. Like I said, a debut author by Jessica Johns. And like Virginia had mentioned earlier, this book had kind of been on my radar for a long time. And I want to give a quick shout out to Weehua Library at UBC campus. I first heard about Bad Cree via their Instagram account probably at some point last year. It feels like it was ages ago. And since kind of hearing about it and seeing how like how people from the Pewa Library really like hyped it up, I really wanted to read it in the moment, but didn't get a chance to until this week's episode. So I was really, really excited to finally get a chance to look at this book. A little bit about the author, Jessica Johns is of English-Irish ancestry, and she's a member of Sucker Creek First Nation in Treaty 8 territory in Northern Alberta. And like I said earlier, Bad Creek being championed by in the Canada Reads debate by a former professional volleyball player and a current CBC Sports contributor named Dallas Sunias. Now, Sunias, I was a volleyball fan, so I had to look up a little bit about him. Um, Sunias was a right side hitter for the Canadian men's national team, and he's a huge reader of graphic novels. So as a fan of volleyball and graphic novels and graphic novels about volleyball, I obviously got really excited about that. He is also Cree and Anishinaabe. So he was very, very excited to champion a Cree book, champion something that's kind of about Indigenous identity in Canada. And he himself made history as the first Indigenous man to represent Canada in volleyball. So that's pretty exciting for him. 
Bad Cree was initially published as a short story back in 2020, and the novel expands on the plot from the short story, where an unnamed narrator, a young Indigenous woman, is trying to make sense of her very vivid and kind of horrifying dreams, while also reconciling with feeling isolated from her family. So the book is horror-infused. It's a very dreamy tale about grief. It's about resilience, about the violence of greed, and the healing power of family. So Bad Cree begins with, in my opinion, a killer opening line. It says, before I look down, I know it's there. The crow's head I was clutching in my dream is now in bed with me. It's good. It's a good line. It's creepy. I don't like birds personally. Crows kind of terrify me. But this book gave me a lot of appreciation for them. Like I walk through the neighborhood and I see the crows on the wires now and I'm like, they're just looking out for me. They're just looking out for their family. So, yeah, it did give me a, a greater respect for crows. So we have Mackenzie. We have our narrator. She's a Cree millennial. She wakes up in her one-bedroom apartment in the Kitsilano neighborhood of Vancouver. We're finally on the West Coast. A little bit of BC representation here. And she wakes up gripping the crow's head that she severed in her dream moments before. She severed it with her bare hands. When she blinks, the head vanishes, but she can still feel its feathers in her palms. Now, in her dream, Mackenzie was running through the woods near her childhood home in Treaty 8 territory in northern Alberta. She was following the sound of a scream. Mackenzie comes across a circular clearing surrounded by pine trees where she finds the source of the screaming, a body splayed on the ground being pecked at by a murder of crows, the body of her dead sister, Sabrina. Now, Sabrina lays unmoving on the ground while the crows are pecking out her heart. So there's a gaping hole in her chest where her heart's supposed to be. Mackenzie has multiple dreams like this. She's running through the woods. She encounters her sister's body. Sometimes Sabrina is already dead, but other times she's alive and kind of looks zombie-like. And Mackenzie always brings something back from the dream to the real world. And in the real world, crows begin following her. And her dreams are becoming eerily similar to real memories that she had with her sister, with Sabrina and her grandmother, her Kokum, before both of their untimely deaths years before. Now, when the horror of the dreams and kind of the horror that's happening in the real world intensifies, Mackenzie finally confides in her family for help. So she lives in Vancouver, but her family is all still on Treaty 8 territory in Alberta. She calls her aunties, who insist that she return home to High Prairie so that they can figure out what's happening in her dreams together, especially since Mackenzie never came home when Sabrina died two years prior, so she was never able to properly grieve her sister's death with her family. However, Mackenzie is very stubborn, and she believes that she can get rid of her dreams with sheer willpower, despite her increasing anxiety about whether they might actually mean something. So one day, while on a walk in her neighborhood in Kitsilano, Mackenzie takes a break at the beach and accidentally falls asleep under a tree. A murder of crows is watching her from the tree above, and they drop a watermelon rind in front of her, kind of an eerie offering to one of their own. Now, while Mackenzie's asleep, she dreams that she's at the lake near her family's home in High Prairie, a memory from years ago when Sabrina was alive. It's summer, and Mackenzie sees herself and her sisters, Sabrina and Sabrina's twin, Tracy, walking along the lake towards a party. She tries to get their attention, but they can't see her or hear her or touch her. And suddenly, she feels like she's being watched by someone else. She turns towards the lake, and standing on the frozen water, the water's now frozen, even though it's the dead of summer, is Sabrina again. 
But this time, Sabrina looks like the zombie Sabrina, the one from the crow train, the one whose heart was being pecked out. Her skin is pale and it's wrinkled and her hair is gray instead of brown. Mackenzie tries to reach her and right before she can, Sabrina lets out a guttural scream and they're both sucked under the water. Mackenzie wakes up on the beach in Vancouver, vomiting fresh water and feeling like she's drowning. Now that it seems like her dreams are actually becoming harmful to her in her real life, Mackenzie's finally willing to accept help from her family, despite the fact that it means finally confronting Sabrina's death. She takes up her auntie's invitation and returns home to High Prairie. At home, surrounded by the familiar sounds and smells of her large and very boisterous family, Mackenzie confides in her mom, in her aunties, in her cousin Cassidy, and her sister Tracy about her dreams and about the scary zombie Sabrina that she keeps encountering. She learns that her mom, Tracy, Cassidy, and one of her aunties have also had their own supernatural dreams. And together as a group, the women begin unraveling the mystery of what is truly haunting their family and haunting the land that they call home and how they can get rid of it once and for all. So it's a very creepy book. There's a lot of kind of like supernatural, magical realism that trickles in. I personally really, really loved this book. I found it very captivating. It's very suspenseful. It's supernatural. It's got this really interesting mystery that slowly and creepily unravels it as you get lost deeper in Mackenzie's dreams. And while the plot is definitely thrilling, by the middle of the book, I was hooked and desperately wanted to figure out what was haunting her family. I would, however, say that even though the plot was really good, I would, would describe the book more as character-driven than it's plot-driven. It's very much a book about family bonds. The mystery at the core of it is kind of driven less by the narrative, less by the plot, and more by the conversations that Mackenzie and her family members have and the truths and the insights that they come to together. It's a book about people coming together and grieving together and kind of processing the, the different tragedies that their families have faced in the past. So it's a book about family bonds. It's an ode to relationships between women and femmes and the strength and resilience that keeps them together through grief and through tragedy. This book is also very atmospheric. It's very dreamy. Much of the horror takes place within Mackenzie's mind. And Jessica Johns really artfully explores the permeal boundaries between dreams and reality, which I found really, really well written. The plot does get wrapped up kind of quickly. It is a debut novel. So it's like it was really, really well written the whole throughout, but the plot at the end kind of get got wrapped up within like just 20 pages or something. So the mystery itself comes together very tightly at the end and very, very fast. But throughout the whole book, I thought it was incredible. And I definitely want to see um, other stuff that Jessica Johns comes out with in the future. I think she's going to be, a if she writes more books like Bad Cree, I think she's going to be a staple in horror and in magical realism. I personally really love magical realism, books with the supernatural, books with mythologies, mythological storytelling. So for me, for personally, for my taste, I would absolutely read more of Jessica Johns in the future if that's the route that she takes. So if you're a fan of Indigenous fiction, if you like horror, magical realism, stories about the bonds of family, um, if you want to read a Canada, the only Canada Reads book that doesn't take place in Ontario, then I would absolutely, absolutely check out Bad Cree by Jessica Johns. My prairie!
I'm very excited about that. Do you think, Emma, um, that it conforms to the theme, One Book to Carry Us Forward? I think it's definitely a book about hope and about resilience. It was quite tragic throughout, but like it, in the book, they're like reconciling with deaths that happened in the past. They're reconciling with Sabrina's death that happened two years before the plot of the book and Kokum's death, the grandmother's death, which I think was three years before Kokum died before Sabrina did. And so the family is like, they're supporting each other while they're all kind of grieving this. And since Mackenzie never went home for Sabrina's funeral, she left home, I think, right after Kokum died. She's never been able to like take the time to really grieve and to really process the tragedies that have happened. She just kind of escaped and was like, I can do this on my own. Um, I don't think I ever mentioned Mackenzie is she's never given an exact age, but she's described as being early 20s. So she's young. She's learning. But it kind of takes her coming back to her family and being around her family and around her support system to really finally process that grief. But it ends with a lot of hope. It's a book about like family resilience, about family bonds and about women supporting women. So I, I don't know if it's necessary. It's as like explicitly about like hope for the future as the Denison Avenue book was. I think that one was quite like on the nose with the theme. But I think you could absolutely argue for Bad Cree. I'm interested to hear how a volleyball player is going to argue for it. Not to say that I don't think Dallas Sunius is going to be eloquent, but I'm pretty excited about that. I also just love volleyball, so that made me made me happy. <laughs> Virginia knows how much I love volleyball. <laughs> All right. So having heard synopsises, synopsis from all of the five books, I'm very curious to see from our panel who you think is going to win. So place your bets now. So Virginia, which book do you think is going to See, like, I will always lose because just as I would never pick Conor McDavid in my hockey pool because I refuse to, I always lose because of that. So I'm just going to pick out of my personal preference because... You know, so I'm going to pick Emma's book because that's one that I've always like. I mean, everything in that book sounds great. And unlike Emma, I I love crows. You know, I think crows are amazing. So, you know, like just knowing that there are crows in it already, I'm like already so. But yeah, the whole like horror, magical realism and families getting together to look at, you know, like generational trauma and all this stuff. Like that's something that I I, I think is, is a great topic. So, yeah, so just personal i don't really care what wins i'm just gonna say that's my winner in a way aren't they all winners because like we read them we talked about them other people are going to talk about them too it's an honor just to be nominated exactly right um my money is of course on denison avenue i think i think it's it and i i really all the all the canada reads books like usually have something amazing to recommend them. Um, I really do think this should be required reading. I think everyone should get there. And again, like if we're going for personal preference, as Virginia said, this book is a combination of prose. And then there's also like bits of poetry. And you know how I look love like a poetry book, a novel in verse. And so, yeah, this is absolutely, this is absolutely what my money's on. Uh, Sadie, what about you? Um, so before this, I would have said Bad Free. 100%. And that was kind of where my my money was on uh, before this. But that being said, I didn't know a lot about Denison Avenue. So I, I am now kind of torn between the two of them. Um, oh, where am I going to say? What am I going to say? I feel like I just have to pick one. Uh, Denison Avenue. I'm doing it. Denison Avenue. Okay. And Emma, what do you think? I'm kind of in the same boat as Sadie. I was convinced earlier that it was going to be bad Cree, but that was before I knew too much about the other nominees. Um, Corrine, you really put put forth a really good argument for Denison Avenue. But I loved this so 
much. Like when Virginia was describing like what she likes in a book and why Bad Cree sounds good to her, I was like, yes, yes, yes. That's why I loved it so much. And it did make me appreciate the crows. I walk under the crows in my neighborhood now and I'm like, you're not so scary anymore. <laughs> so I I think I have to stay with Bad Cree. Stay with my book. Until they start dropping shells on your head. Then they're terrifying. Well, okay. So when when she fell asleep at the beach and the crow dropped the watermelon, at first she was like, oh, they're dropping things on me. They're trying to like attack me or something. But then after talking about it with their family, her family was like, no, they see you as one of their own. They're giving you an offering. So really, really kind of changed my thinking. All right. Well, we have our votes in of what we think or what we want to win. Um, it really all depends on the drama of the competition. There have been upsets in the past, and it really does depend on the strength of the people championing the book. Sometimes they make you see a book in an entirely new light through an entirely new lens, and it makes you appreciate it a little bit more. So we will find out who the winner is on March 7th. So you can tune in to CBC in its various formats and means to see which book will reign supreme. Regardless, as we have mentioned, all of these books are worthy in their own way of your time and attention. And definitely pick them up so that you can argue with any of our staff members about the book and which one should win when you come in. So uh, thank you so much for myself and from on behalf of my other book friends for joining us for the 2024 edition of Keep It Fictional's <laughs> Tribute to Canada Reads. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then... Keep it fictional.